Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Royce Freeman is an independent filmmaker from Jacksonville, Florida. As a writer first, he tends to concentrate on story before using his technical skills to bring it to fruition. In this interview, he talks about his unique half-Jewish, half-Southern roots, challenges faced on set, and why you don't have to rush to achieve a breakthrough. There's stories that I feel I need to tell. It's a burning desire inside me to tell those stories. That's the driving force of my life is being a storyteller. I was brought up uh, in New York. My dad was a filmmaker, still is, and my mom was a nurse, and my brother and I were brought up in Queens, New York. I had uh, relatives on my mom's side that lived in the same building as us and also across the street, so my mom's side of the family was very much part of our lives, um, and my dad's side of the family wasn't in New York, so we saw them at, uh, not as much. It was interesting being raised in two different kind of uh, cultures because my mom's side of the family are um, Russian and Polish Jewish immigrant descendants. So I had the Jewish culture uh, around the holidays and those kinds of things. And uh, of course, also being from New York. So if you've ever seen the nanny, that's the kind of vibe that uh, it had around the, the family. Uh, lots of uh, high energy and accents. <laughs> And then my dad's side of the family, uh, all Southern folks, so we, you know, there was that energy too. Royce's first exposure to filmmaking came at an early age, as his father was something of a jack-of-all-trades within the industry. Oh, what did he do? My dad did a lot of stuff. And this was back in celluloid and film before video was a thing. My dad was a cameraman, cinematographer. He edited, he worked in animation. Uh, I remember going to the studio where he worked. He had his own private space. He was freelanced and he had a camera they call an animation stand. It's a camera that's pointed down on a um, platform. And just like how when people look at slides under a microscope, they put the slides underneath the thing. It looks very similar to that in as far as you would put pieces of film that you needed photographed or like graphic art, and you would put it on the platform underneath the camera, and then the camera would photograph it frame by frame or however they're going to do it. So I remember being around a lot of that when I was a kid. And much like how uh, dads teach their kids to dance by standing on their feet and they puppet them around, I remember a lot when I was a kid, my dad would sit me down at the editing station and he would show me how to cut film by i'm holding the cutter and he would put his hand over my hand and guide it down so he would show me how to do things by do you know by doing them even before i really understood what i was doing my muscle memory was learning those things just like my dad would take my brother and i sometimes to his job and we would see him uh, doing his film stuff the uh, opposite side of that was my grandfather, my grandfather's father, Jacob, 
he ran his own dry goods business, you know, quilts and uh, blankets and, you know, things like that. And, and it was in Manhattan near Chinatown. Great grandfather Jacob, he passed it on to my grandfather, Sammy. So when I grew up, grandpa was running that business. And sometimes grandpa would take me and my brother to Chinatown to hang out at his store. And just like kids in the living room when they're when they're uh, they build like little forks with the blanket and the and the the chairs and the couch my brother and i would run around his store freely and he'd let us and we would make little forts with uh, the some of the stuff that was around and we'd climb up on the shelves and uh, i mean it was safe kind of but our memories of grandpa was that uh, he would tote us around proudly I don't know if you would call him an Orthodox Jewish man, but he had faith and he had culture. But he would parade my brother and I around so proudly, you know. He might have gone to temple more than we were aware of, but he definitely, on some of the high holy days, sometimes he would actually have my brother and I dress up a little, and he would take us to temple again, because he was very proud of his family. And he would take my brother around and, you know, we were his little um, well-dressed Menchie uh, grandkids and, uh, you know, with, their, with our little yarmulkes and, and stuff. That's the fond memory I have of my grandfather is that he would tote us around proudly. And on weekends, because uh, what's interesting is the Jewish culture, the Sabbath is a Saturday, but in the Gentile community, the, uh, the high holy day is Sunday. So grandpa's only day that he didn't work was Saturday. So on Saturdays, he would take us for ice cream or just little things like that. We would, you know, he would want to hang out with us. That was the best way to, to describe the difference between the cultures is not so much the difference of cultures, but my dad would take us to his job and I'd see the, um, the filmmaking side of it. And then grandpa on the other side of the family would take us to the blue collar, um, you know, really working, um, kind of job you know so we'd see grandpa really uh sweating for uh for a living dad also did did that too but one was artistic and one was more hands-on uh just a, a different kind of thing but we, so we got we saw both kinds both sides of a hard day's work and an honest an honest living when i was a teenager we moved to miami to be closer to my dad's brother and they started working together for a while I had been to Florida, I think, maybe once before we moved. Maybe we went to Disney or something. I don't remember. For me, it was like you see in the movies, even though that's a little bit of a stereotype. Everything was like when you watch Scarface and you see Miami Beach, everything is white pastels and vibrant colors. I went from a brick building that I lived in, like a brownstone kind of a building in New York, to seeing a lot of green. There wasn't a lot of fields and, and gardens and stuff that I saw when I was a kid. But when I moved to Miami, it's Florida, you know? It's the beach. It's lots of trees and lots of parks and things that I'm sure they have them in New York, but I didn't see a lot of them. It was a drastic difference. It's like a person who lives in the desert and suddenly now they're at the water. They've never seen water and now they see water. You know, it's that kind of analogy. Now, in New York is a hodgepodge of all kinds of cultures. So you see, you do hear different accents, but I wasn't aware of the Latin community in New York, even though there's lots of people in New York that are from many aspects of Latin culture. 
in Miami, it's all over the place. And so I was hearing languages I didn't hear, like accents and things. Music, when you're driving down the street, you hear people driving by in their car and you'd hear tango music, you'd hear um, salsa music, you'd hear, you know, all kinds of different music that you're just, it's prominent in those cultures and you just don't hear a lot of it if you're not around it. So it was an eye-opening experience to move to a different place that had a different culture primarily. My circle of friends definitely broadened because now I had access to, you know, all kinds of different folks. As a teenager, I started to get into the whole 90s culture, you know, all that alternative scene where you'd have um, alternative music, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and other bands that were counterculture and telling gritty stories in their music or even films like Tarantino and Kevin Smith. Pulp Fiction and Clerks were very much a big part of my teenage years because those were anti-establishment, uh, against-the-grain storytelling and film. And then they started a wave. I mean, 90s is where a lot of that kind of thing came. But it's not, the 90s wasn't the first time they ever did it. I think culture comes in waves. The counterculture was there in the 70s, 80s with punk rock. The whole movement of punk rock is, damn the man, you know, we're just going to, we're going to play our musical instruments uh, loud and angry and rage against the machine as I, as I guess is what the, the, uh, I guess the name of the band rage against the machine is talking about that very much the punk rock movement in this, in the old days and then the, the grunge and stuff in the nineties was uh, going against the machine. My brother gravitated more into the musical side of things and I gravitated more towards fantasy and storytelling. I did creative writing and, and stuff like that when I was in school. And when I was in high school, I don't remember exactly the seed of how this started, but I started to gravitate towards looking online at you know, all these other creative things. And I think I stumbled upon some fan website for some movie stuff. And I like horror movies and scary movies primarily, but I like all movies. And I saw this fan website for uh, Friday the 13th, and I started mingling with these fans. And I don't know why I thought to do it, but I started calling up the Hollywood agencies, you know, under the guise of I'm a little goober teenager who is in the film club, and I'm a writer, and I'd like to interview some of these celebrities to pick their brain and find out what makes them tick. And these agents were so taken, uh, they, were, they were overjoyed by the fact that the youth culture was so interested in what the celebrities were doing. Because there was no DVDs, so there was no um, DVD special editions where they had the commentaries and then all these documentaries. I mean, Criterion had stuff they were putting on a laser disc, but those were expensive, so most people didn't just have access to laser disc players. So I was ahead of the curve, I guess. I was interviewing those celebrities before there really was all this interview stuff that was in the main culture. On my website, I had recorded all those interviews and put the, the audio files so uh, people can listen to them. I get to meet a lot of the people, some of the people I still talk with and work with today in some capacity. Um, one of them is this Hollywood composer, Harry Manfredini, and he worked on a lot of those horror films in the 80s. So I had this fan website. And 
I actually reached out to other people and some people had seen on the website, I was doing fan fiction. I was doing all kinds of screenplays for movies that would never get made, but they were in franchises I love. So I was writing Halloween and Friday the 13th and Chainsaw Massacre and Freddy Krueger. I was doing fan films, writing them, and people could, could read them. And a couple of people read those things and reached out to me, one of which is um, this guy, Tom Wormke. And he actually has been a collaborator ever since we hooked up online. We've been writing stuff together, and uh, we've worked on many projects together. Um, it's like a domino effect, really. You know, I met one person, then I met another person through them. And lots of projects I've had over the years either were directly resulting from having that website or the domino effect of one thing led to the next, which led to the next. And, you know, one job gets you the next job kind of thing. And then I got, went into film school, you know, during that time as well. And did sh some short films, student films back then. Royce eventually leveraged his love for movies and his penchant for networking with other movie lovers into his first independent feature, the horror film Rapture. While I was in college, I met my friend that now is my friend, uh, Kurt Poulin. He was my manager at this movie theater I was working at. And he saw me bringing in my little notebooks and writing screenplays. And um, he took a liking to me as, as a friend. What's interesting is he saw in me himself years before that I was doing what he used to do. But he had had lots of experiences where people made promises they couldn't keep and just disillusioned and jaded him. So he kind of hung it up. And he was working in a movie theater, so he was still around movies. But he stopped doing creative arts and it was like they say in the movies you know the gangster movies and they try to get out and they're like he sucked me back in well <laughs> my friend kurt said that uh you know i actually sparked back in him the youthful passion he had for film so we started working on stuff together simultaneously i was working on stuff with tom and stuff with kurt and both of those relationships we were coming up with projects but for the most part, we never, um, people, again, were making us promises they couldn't keep. So we were trying to find a way to write our own ticket. And that culminated with a big project that happened uh, down the line. Tom came into a bit of inheritance about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And he saw work I had done on another project that didn't get finished because the producer uh, was a bit of a flake. But he saw the footage and saw that I was making, actually making something. I wasn't just writing. I was actually filming it and actually getting things going. And he saw the potential that we could actually make our own destiny. We could make something for ourselves. So he said, I want to make a movie. I want to invest in a movie. The movie I want to make has a very bare bones scenario. And you can expand from there. It's kids go to the wrong house, the wrong time and bad people live there. Or, or staying there, and the kids are not able to leave. You know, they're held hostage, and then bad things ensue. And that's all I had to go from. And I told Kurt, well, this is the uh, bare-bone structure that Tom's willing to invest in. What do you got? And Kurt had just become a born-again Christian. And he said, you know, all the, the little projects we've been trying over the, to do over the years always had a little bit of that Rob Zombie bent and, and edge to them. There's a little bit of ugliness to 
very anti-personal violence, like Saw and things like that, where it's just ugly, but there's no fun or there's no message. And he said, I only want to do this if we can be partners together and I can write it with you and I can be in the film as an actor. And I said, okay. And he said, but because I'm a born again Christian, I want to do something that has a message. And so we crafted a film, Rapture. You know, it's a film with spiritual tones, the villain that, uh, or, or antagonist that Kirk plays. His name is Wolf, and he's the son of a preacher, and he's been jaded and disillusioned and broken as a man, as a human being. And he's been really scarred. So he, in turn, projects the ugliness that he feels out to the world. And that character, you know, causes a lot of misery and pain for others. But there is a message in the film. And because one of the victims that they kidnap is her name is Grace. And she's a pure virginal character. And she represents purity and hope and salvation. And she tries every turn in the film, no matter who is getting hurt or killed around her. She keeps trying to save this man's soul. Much like Paul uh, going to Philippians in the Bible, you know, she will not turn away from faith. Even where something could happen to her, she still is going to try to save this guy. And that was an interesting prospect for me that, you know, we would be portraying all this ugliness, but then there would be hope. So we made that film and it was a positive experience. But, you know, at the time, I was really a first time director as far as a lot of people knew. I mean, I had done things, but. I didn't have a track record to show because all the other projects, the producers were flakes or something happened, which, you know, it reflects on me because I, I worked on those things, but I can't, couldn't say, Hey, I made this movie because it never got finished. But, um, the one thing I would say about that project is for the most part, I never got to work with Kurt on the set. When I was on set, I was on set with Wolf. He was a method actor and he was never, overtly mean or cruel to me but he was so worked up and on edge because of being the character and you know it was hot or some of the kids were not listening properly or cooperating with what we needed to do so he became agitated and irritated and so sometimes in the middle of a scene if a character wasn't cooperating he would use some of how he was feeling about the people as as people and he would just kind of interject sometimes an extra little subtle remark in the in as the character and it goes unnoticed nobody will notice these things but he was letting the frustration of the film making influence how he played the character and it actually it was, it, it's funny the character was better for it you know it gave him an edge that he may not have had if everything was roses and happiness he gave a standout performance. We made that movie. It took a couple of years to get it finished in post-production because, you know, when you're doing it yourself and you're not paying people, you have to, you know, work when you can. We had a premiere of that in 2014 and it was fun. People came and we celebrated and more projects came from having that premiere. But there was never the movie I actually wanted to make because I got to make it more or less on the set, but in post-production, Lots of things I wanted to do were not necessarily supported, not because they weren't good ideas, but they were such bold ideas that could go wrong if they don't, you know, like you're gambling, you're betting the farm. 
you know, I was take, wanting to take chances that were very artistic in the editing and structuring of the film that just were so bonkers that not everybody could get on board. So I ended up compromising a lot. And the movie that was originally put out, self-released on Amazon by ourselves and then premiered, wasn't the film I set out to make. So I put a pin in that. Royce contemplated moving and searching for his community, but he met someone special and found out he was already where he belonged. Around that time, my mom had passed away. It was right around the time that the premiere happened. She got to watch the movie. We watched it at home because she was sick and she wasn't going to go to the theater. And my dad ultimately didn't go to the theater either. But we watched it at home. She congratulated me on making it, which my dad, by the way, had helped me work on the post-production of that film. But my mom passed on. And then my dad was going to leave Jacksonville because where we were living at the time. We moved up here in 2004. And so this was in 2014 is when the, you know, 10 years later is when that movie premiered. And my dad was going to go live in North Carolina to live with my brother who had moved up there. And then that's where my grandmother lives. So pretty much all of my dad's family lives in North Carolina for the most part. So he was going to move up there because he didn't have, he wasn't, uh, my mom had passed on. So I was still in a relationship at the time. So I wasn't going anywhere, but if, if I had been out of that relationship, he was going to want, you know, hey, why don't you come to North, Car North Carolina? There's a film community up there and you could do films up there. I was in a relationship that did not work out. And when I finally was a free man, my dad's like, no questions asked. You're coming with me. We're going to North Carolina. We're starting over. And I was like, yes, sir. Before I moved, I actually had put myself out there just to date a little bit, just to meet people. So I wouldn't just be, uh, you know, sitting at home doing nothing for the last uh, several months of being here. And one of the people that I had met, this gal, Tressa, who later became my wife, we became friends. We hung out and dated a little. It was going to be sad that I had to move, but I was moving. So we were going to keep in touch. Well, I moved and I was gone for a period of time and became homesick. My old job said, if you ever want to come back, there's a job waiting for you. And my friends missed me a lot. And so I moved back. Tressa was like, if you move back, you can move in with me. And we can try to give this a go and try to make it work seriously. So I did that. I moved in with Tressa. We were dating. Um, this was in the summer of 2015. Very quickly, my dad was noticing all the things I would put on social media. I was just a different person. I was glowing all the time when I was in, in photographs. He could just tell there was an aura I was giving off that was just projecting happiness that he hadn't seen in a long time. A little before Thanksgiving, I told my dad, I said, Dad, I know back in the day when our older generations, when they didn't necessarily have a long life, life expectancy to live to 100 or whatever, people were sometimes getting married when they only knew each other for six months sometimes. You know, some of it was love, some of it was, you know, let's start our life now because we don't know how long it's going to be. But I told my dad, I said, Dad, I think she's the one. I've thought that before in the past, but there's no toxicity here at all. This is a pure, loving relationship, and I'm thinking she's the one. When I told him I think she's the one, he goes, Son, I have no problem with your choices you're making. 
she seems to make you very happy and it's obvious she's getting you out there. Like when I first moved back within a week or two of moving back to Jacksonville, she had said, Hey, do you want to go to this film festival that's playing in five points? And I said, sure. Yeah. I think I had been to one of those before one or two of them before she's like, yeah, let's go. So when I went, there was this filmmaker that was like, did you say your name is Royce Freeman? I said, yes, I did. He said, did you make Rapture? I said, yeah, that was me. He goes, I really liked your film. I'm a producer for a local production company, and we do short films and things like that. A director that was set to direct a short film that I'm producing dropped out, and we need a director. And I'm very impressed with your work, and I'd like to offer you the opportunity to direct the short film if you're interested. And I said, absolutely, I'm interested. So we worked on that short film. He liked my work ethic so much that I edited that short film as well as directing it. And he goes, I like your command of the set and I like how you edit. So how would you like to work for me directly on these short films? Uh, Every so often you can direct one, but I want you to edit for me and I want you to be my assistant director. So that way you can command the set. You can keep us all moving and organized while I'm doing the creative lifting of the directing part. But I like how you keep a tight set. So I want you to assist and direct for me. And I worked on a lot of stuff with him doing that and editing for him. One of the things that I did, I got to direct this music video. And it came from this local guy. I met this guy, uh, Jared Rush at the Sunray at one of the film festivals, and he took an interest in my work. And he introduced me to this guy, James Seiler, who also saw my work and saw potential in it. Much like the 48-hour film festival is trying to be creative on the fly with limitations and go. Here's your parameters. Let's see what you can do. There was a music video equivalent of a 48. They said, we're going to give you the song on the day. You won't know what the song is. But you're going to shoot a music video for it, and you would have two days to complete the whole thing. I got to do that. One of the people I met around that time, Josh Townsend, he is a uh, filmmaker who introduced me to other filmmakers. So he saw some of my work, and he was like, hey, Royce, I know you have this feature movie script that you're trying to get off the ground, which became in, in utero. But he goes, enough talking about it. You need to make moves and hustle. He says, one of the tricks inside, inside hustling is sweat equity. If you work on other people's films, you can call in favors to get them to help you. And he says, it's shameless, but everybody does it. People will owe you, <laughs> you know, and it's not because you're not doing it because they're going to owe you, but it's kind of the necessary evil in the businesses. If you can't pay people, you should pay with sweat. You help them, they help you. And so, Josh said, hey, come help out on this guy, Justin Mann's uh, short film that I'm working on. Um, He he can use a hand. And so I went and helped him, Justin and this guy, Jaron, and um, a bunch of other crew people that worked on that short film. And one of the people I I met was this uh, actress, Jessica Lamb. I was so impressed with her uh, acting in that film because she had diversity and she was funny and she was intense. and. She could do all kinds of stuff. She had range. And I told her, you know, while over lunch on the set, I have this feature movie that I wrote. And you think you'd be perfect for it? And she was intrigued. 
because it was a feature movie and not just a short. And so we became friends. We got the ball rolling on trying to get that project going in, in utero. And one of these people I met at the Sunray at this other film festival, to set the scene, my wife and I and our friend Clem, we always go to the after parties and, uh, and after the events. And there's this place called Birdie's, which is next door to Sunray. And we're all mingling and drinking and stuff. I look over the jukebox and I recognize this guy. And I recognize him from one of the short films we just watched. In a metaphorical sense, not in a romantic sense, I kind of went over to the guy at the jukebox, much like he would go over to a, a, a person you were romantically interested in in the jukebox. And I started geeking out, not flirting romantically, but geeking out like a sweaty nerd. You know, I went over and I said, did, did you work on that movie, blah, 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 that was in the film festival that was just playing? And the guy lit up like a Christmas tree. He was like, because nobody was talking to him. He goes, yeah, man, you liked it? I said, oh, yeah, I really liked it. And I was talking about how I liked it. And I was talking about one of the special effects they did that was creative in the thing. He was taken really by that. And he started calling over these two other friends of his. He's like, Daniel, Sam, get over here. And this guy's name was Nick. So these three guys, they were all, he's like, tell, tell them what you just told me. So I was telling them what I liked the film and they had all worked on it. And they were like, oh yeah, you, you make movies too? I said, yeah, yeah. And I have this feature movie and told them the pitch, the elevator pitch of the film. And they said, that sounds amazing. And they're big fans of David Lynch. So they liked off the wall, quirky, uh, you know, esoteric uh, thrillers and, and, and dramas and stuff. And the movie in utero is very much that it has a hard edge. But it's very weird and quirky, like a David Lynch film it, to some degree. They were like, we would love to work on that. And much like the sweat equity thing is, they said, we could all work on it together. We could all take the risk together. How about they work for sweat equity? So they're going to bring all their camera gear and their talent and their person, you know, all, all the labor and the gear. And they're going to give their time. And I would produce it in the sense that I would pay for props and pay for craft services and feeding people. And I would get the locations. So we would all put all our resources together and make this film. Ultimately, they said I would have final cut. It's my script. And they wanted me to make sure I had my vision. But one of the deals they said was, look, there's three of us and there's one of you. And we're not going to try to pull rank, but they want to make sure that their voices are heard, at least. In a nutshell, this what equity thing really uh, just came to fruition. The Pig Tree guys decided they wanted to help me. I was going to give them some creative input where they could uh, suggest things. And ultimately, they were going to let me do my thing. But I was going to let them voice their ideas. So we felt like we were sharing the, the workload. And they did an amazing job. So we made the movie. It took us about six months to do it off and on. We had a screening at Sunray because we love to show things at Sunray all the time because it's a nice little boutique theater. It's a, not a chain. It's, it's mom and pop owned. It's locally owned. It got entered into the Southeast Regional Film Festival. We actually got a um, an award for best original film, a runner-up trophy for that. Which you, you don't you don't make it for trophies and stuff, but it was nice to be recognized. Around that time, I actually got a uh, project off the ground, uh, the short film cliche, which was like The Breakfast Club meets Friday Thirteenth. So every one of the characters is a caricature of a stereotype. So you'd have a promiscuous girl and a, vir and a virginal girl and you'd have a stoner and a jock and a, and a jokester and a, 
and a nerd, and all of them were going to be stopped by this killer. And so it had the Breakfast Club meets Friday 13th vibe, one of their little short film showcases in a while. And I was like, you know, this short film is like 25 minutes long. It's like a mini movie. It's not a regular short film. It's like five minutes, you know? I was like, wouldn't it be nice to be able to show this at Sunray? But I'm not going to I'm not going to rent the theater out just to show the short film and that's it. I said, well, the director's cut of uh, In Utero, which went into the Southeast Regional Film Festival, nobody's seen that on the big screen except for the festival. Why don't I have a double feature? An old-timey kind of grindhouse double feature is, you know, you have a short film and then you have the feature. So we made a night of the movies of that. So we show both those films. It had positive response. You know, we filled the theater with two audiences, people that wanted to see Cliché and people that wanted to see this new version of a new hero. And much like all the other projects in the past, that scenario actually got me more work. One of the recurring challenges Royce has faced over the years is how to retain creative control over his scripts. He often takes on multiple production roles for most of his films. I started off writing when I was younger, and I didn't get into directing really until um, the project that was right before Rapture that the producer flaked down me. But basically, I started writing, and I saw how other people were interpreting my work. And a lot of times they interpreted and changed it for the better, but sometimes they interpret and changed it and it's not what I had in mind. And much like Tarantino has said, he directs primarily so that his script doesn't get bastardized by some other guy. So he directs as an, out of necessity to maintain the integrity of his script. So some of it is a, is a chicken and the egg scenario. I love directing. I, I, mean, I actually love to do it. It is fun. I love to direct, but I also love directing the stuff I write because I get to make sure that what I wrote is the, what I want it to be. Sometimes I end up editing the stuff I work on and also gives me the ability to make sure it's how I want it to be for the most part. But something interesting about the editing uh, process is because all these other projects over the years, um, I've had strong personalities at times working with me that sometimes they're the producer, but I didn't write it, the script, but they asked me to come on and do the best job I can. But sometimes they micromanage you and they're like, I want you to do the best job you can, but also want you to do it my way. You know, it's like, well, hold on, I'm not being paid. You know, can I just have authorship where I can do it the best job I can? Let me make some choices here. You know, if you want to direct it so bad, you direct it. Otherwise, let me do it. Because I've had instances where things were micromanaged for me. My confidants, besides my wife, is my friends. And I would tell Tom and Kurt all the time because they're my best friends. They, they were at my wedding. They were my best man and my uh, man of honor. They're my buddies. And I would tell them all the time, oh, this, this experience was less than desirable or this was this. And they'd see that in addition to not getting to do Rapture the way I wanted to do it, ultimately, they started to see that I keep having more instances of people doing second guessing when the proof's in the pudding. My work speaks for itself, but yet they don't always give, give me the ability to, to shine. And so both Tom and Kurt said, you know, we want you to go back and we want you to re-edit Rapture from scratch. 
We want you to make it the way you want to make it. We don't want to interfere at all. If you want to do some reshoots to come up with some flashbacks, new material, whatever you want to do, go ahead. The movie is yours. You make it how you want to make it. We won't interfere. And that's something that's premiering on May 23rd at Sunray is the um, the re-director's cut, the recut of Rapture. It's really a whole different film. I mean, it's the same footage, kind of, but there's a lot of takes we didn't use before. We had shot two cameras. This guy, Mark, who was my cinematographer, who had actually passed away. You know, that's we're dedicating it to him. But I love wearing multiple hats. It's fun. It's like when you cram for a test, the edge that you get is the adrenaline rush. And sometimes you find a way to rise above the occasion when the pressure's on. You know, if you have too much time, you can get complacent or you can get too comfortable. You don't have that edge. And that's actually what my assistant director, um, Casey, said to me on one of the projects is I asked her, do you think we should have a lot of prep time? you know, for some of these projects and go and check out the locations in advance a lot and storyboard everything. And I mean, we do some of that stuff, but I said, do you think we'd be better off if we were overly prepared? She goes, no, you know, I mean, we could, but a lot of us that don't have a lot of free time to meet up in advance too much to be, you know, really overly prepared that way. But she goes, you know, it might sound like a cop-out, but I think our strongest creative efforts come when we're under the wire. When we have to come up with a solution on the fly sometimes for something, or we have to scramble because we're losing the light, we come up with something we never would have thought of if we had all the time in the world. Obviously, you, every, everybody wants all the time and the money in the world. I mean, everybody that does any job where they could benefit from having time and money, of course they want that. But there's a little bit of an edge. when you, Whenever you've been under the wire, you actually think that your best self shines through but my dad is always telling me always to keep writing things, you know, and at the time I, I was doing those other short films for that guy, Rick, I had a short film I wrote called The Shooter, but it was just sitting on a shelf because I was busy doing other things. And he goes, I think you should just make that film. Just make it. And we found a location. It was a really interesting environment to shoot in. And uh, once I had that, I was like, OK, yeah, we can we can shoot this short. We got actors that were really uh, passionate about the project. We got a really awesome location. We made this uh, short film that it was like a metaphor for a gunslinger assassin, but it was really... I had never heard this expression, cameraman being referred to as a shooter before. I mean, obviously, it makes sense. They're shooting a film. But I heard someone refer to that person as a shooter a couple of years ago. And I was like, wouldn't it be interesting to do a movie that's like Apocalypse Now? It's about a guy who's kind of washed up and he's waiting for his next mission but this mission is not being an assassin it's being a filmmaker <laughs> it's being a director or a cameraman you know and so i, I decided to, to make that i thought it was fun um i started to notice my style seems to be subversive and sometimes contrary you know i like to do stuff that is uh like cliche was a metaphor for breakfast club as a horror film and the shooter was a a gunslinger, and Apocalypse Now meets a film, you know. So I just I thought that would be a fun thing to do to to do a like a romp of funny little satire kind of thing with a twist ending, you know. One of the scripts I had written years ago was loosely based on stuff when I was a teenager, as far as people I knew and some things I had gone through, and it was called Scarlet, and it was going to be about 
a angsty boy who meets a girl and you know he takes a liking to her and the mom is a little bit of a nut and so there's a misunderstanding and um his life is ruined she's also going through a bunch of domestic problems i kept trying to get that made for years and i always kept being told by friends of mine that they thought it was really strong but there was something they thought was missing and i didn't know what it was and they couldn't tell me and one of these uh ladies uh, that I met, filmmakers that I met at the 48th the previous year, Deborah uh, Brown, I saw something that she did and I really liked her work. And I said, you know, maybe that's what this missing. It's called Scarlet, but it's from the point of view of the boy because I was the boy in high school. So I wrote it from my perspective and Scarlet was the object of affection. She was the the thing that's shining on a, on a, on a mantle, you know? And so I said, maybe it needs to be from, it's called Scarlet. Maybe it needs to be from her perspective, maybe a little bit. So Deborah came on and she found a way to take my ideas and shape them in a way that actually improved the film. I got a bunch of people that uh, had worked on other stuff with me and we got to make that film. It deals with teen angst and domestic abuse, um, attempted suicide of a character you have to see the audience has to see it to see who it is i thought it was a really powerful film and one of the things that i ended up doing with that is on the shooter we had this actor Durgan godfrey and he played this wacky director character that was you know uh, really just high strung and and you know he had a lot that was it was a quirky character and my main cinematographer brian feist who works on all my stuff sent, uh, still and started with me right before Cliché. He was supposed to shoot Scarlet. And a week or so before shooting, he actually couldn't do it. And he says, if either we have to reschedule the whole thing, and then I can do it if we can do it another time, or you have to find someone else. And I was like, well, everybody's already available to shoot this weekend. I'm not rescheduling the whole thing. And uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry. And he goes, no, I understand. So... I literally turned to Durden because he's a director. He directs his own stuff. Um, and I said, Durden, can you help me out of a bind? And so, you know, Durden, as a favor to me, he came and he shot Scarlet, which I'm not saying Brian wouldn't have done a great job. I think he would have done an amazing job. But under the time constraints, I actually think, for whatever reason, the DNA of that movie, that Durden was born to shoot it. I think he was meant to shoot that film because it deals with phonetic, crazy characters and a scenario, and it almost needs to be handheld. It needs to be, you know, maybe one camera off to the side getting a secondary shot, but it more or less needs to be shot documentary style. I couldn't be happier with the end result of that, so much so that I put it into a film festival and they, they actually, it won Best Short Film in Jacksonville of that film festival. And I, I attributed to every piece of the puzzle was perfectly aligned. All the other cast members, all the other crew members, and having a Hollywood score by Harry Manfredini. All of it all came together, and I don't think if any one of those pieces was not there, then maybe we wouldn't necessarily have won. One of the things that I tend to do is it's almost like a dare. If I have a story I want to tell and people say to me, the story is fine, 
but I don't think it's appropriate that you're telling that story. I have to think to myself why they're saying that, because I think a story is a story. I wanted to write a, a film, and I did, about this contemporary thing that was happening, which was the the Me Too movement, and uh, all these these uh, people of power were abusing their power. Notice I said people because you find out that while a lot of them are guys, there are some women that have participated in essentially um, betraying their own gender. There are women that have done wrong things. There's guys that have done wrong things. So I wanted to tell a film that was about power and the mis misuse of it. I wrote this film with uh, the girl that played uh, Scarlet, Lexi. She co-wrote this script with me called Limelight Shadows. And it was um, a film about this filmmaker who's abusing his power. And Lexi and a bunch of other people are people that are all catfishing him. They're trying to get, they're trying to make him pay. And we made that film, we put it into film festivals and a bunch of people said they liked it. And But I took it as a dare because they were like, oh, you're doing a movie that's about me too, essentially. And you're a guy. You have no business telling that story. It's not your story to tell. That's like, but I'm telling a story about people that are trying to fight back. I think that's a very empowered story. And plus it was co-written by a woman. And I made sure, I made sure that there was more women on the set than there were guys. My assistant director was Casey. I made sure that there was other people on the, on the set that were in a creative consultant uh, capacity that were assisting. I wanted to make sure that the women's voice was there. But I just wanted to tell the story, so I did. I think that a dare sometimes forces you to have to prove people wrong. I felt strongly enough that I wanted to tell that story, so I did. And that's another thing that, uh, as a filmmaker, I don't like doors being shut in my face. Because they say if a door shuts, a window opens. Or if a window shuts, a door opens. You know, whatever, you know, th that metaphor is just because the door shuts in your face doesn't mean it's the end. It just, sometimes it's the universe testing your resolve to fight for it. Or you're going to, going to keep trying. You know, and I think that's another thing that, that, that could be useful to people coming into this is no does mean no in a lot of things in life. But sometimes in a business sense or artistic sense, a door being shut in your face is not the end. It's just a challenge. And there's ways around challenges. I mean, it just tests your perseverance and your resolve. Today, Royce has achieved a tentative balance between his filmmaking passions and the other aspects of his life. But he remains open to potential opportunities should they arise in the future. I'm a new daddy. I'm an at-home dad. My, that's my primary job. My nine-to-five is being a daddy. I'm a 24-hour daddy. But, but as far as balancing the two, I would not be able to balance the two if it wasn't for having an understanding and encouraging spouse. Tressa knows that I have projects that are in my heart and my passion, and she gives me the freedom and space to do those things. And sometimes if we're shooting something and, you know, it's a weekend, she'll take the baby for a walk. 
She'll go and hang out with her friends and she'll bring the baby along too. She gives me the the freedom to go and do what I need to do. When she's at work during the week, nine to five, I'm at home. So she wants to give me the ability to do the film stuff still also. I wouldn't be able to do it if, if it wasn't for her being so supportive. I would leave Florida um, because it's a partnership, you know, a marriage. Uh, my wife works for a hospital and it's a... Um, there's an overseeing company that runs the hospital chain. So she said, if we moved, she said, we could move somewhere if it was close enough to a sister hospital that was in network, because then she could still transfer to some other place and still work for the same company. But she's always supportive. She goes, if the money was there, if the opportunity presented where moving to a place where film was really thriving and big, like California or something, You know, she goes, I'd move, you know, but it would have to make sense financially to do it. Right now, we're big fish in a small pond here in Jacksonville, you know. We're all doing independent film. A lot of us have jobs. Some people are lucky enough to be able to shoot videos and weddings and other things for people. So they're still able to shoot things and make money. You know, they're biding their time until they can be a creative filmmaker doing um, the features and the things they want to get paid to do it. But, um... I have a lot of fun in Jacksonville. I met a lot of amazing people here. I go to all, all, as many of the festivals and, and do a lot of as many of the contests and things as I can to keep my my skill set sharp and always learn and grow. And you know, I work with, I like to work with new people as much as possible, as well as bringing them onto teams of my existing people because you keep upping your game by bringing in new people. And they always say, surround yourself with people that are more talented than you. It'll force you to grow. It's like being a a head of a company or a politician or whoever that has a board of advisors. If you're the boss and you're the smartest one in the room, that's a problem. You want to have a cabinet or a board of advisors that's smarter than you, because if you're the smartest one in the room, why do you need them? You know, so it's the same thing with me. I know how to hold a camera, but I'm not a camera guy. I'm not a cinematographer, but I need a cinematographer. And I have Guy Brian that I've been working with primarily for years. Casey has been my AD for the most part for a while. I work with lots of people repeatedly because there's the loyalty where I give them the respect. They show respect back. We seem to benefit each other mutually. You know, they like the projects, otherwise they wouldn't work on them. And I like to also help other filmmakers. I like to show up to other people's projects and help them do their stuff. I'm not above holding a slate. I'm not above uh, standing there, uh, you know, um, doing script supervisor work or help setting up lights. No, I'm not above any of that. I I would love to help other people achieve their dreams in addition to achieving mine, you know? I have a couple of short films that I wrote that I'm trying to get going. I have two feature films that I've written over the years that are also, one's a romantic comedy and one's another drama, but it's not a horror film. And so I I don't see an end in sight. I mean, I'm only 40. Some of my idols, my filmmakers that I admire, you hear that they didn't get their break to do features. I mean, they did commercials and short films and stuff. But some of these old-timey filmmakers, they're like, I didn't make my, my film that I'm known for until I was 50, you know, 45, 50. And then they've been working until they were 90 something and they, they pass away. And I was like, well, I'm just 41, you know, 
maybe maybe Rapture actually getting finished finally now is like a bookend to my first part of my life because it was the first movie I made and now I'm finishing it finally my way now. And maybe that's the first chapter, first part of my filmmaking career is those two, the two raptures and everything in between. And maybe the opportunity that it gets uh, will yield other things. I mean, in utero finally got a distribution deal uh, with this um, company Bayview uh, Entertainment. And maybe they'll want to see Rapture too, and maybe it'll come out that way. But my dad said that all these things, they can only mean hope. A good thing is always a good thing. You know, he goes, you know, in your line of work, every door that opens creates an opportunity. And he says, you have to have the wisdom to notice the opportunity because you might miss the bus. And then you don't know when the next bus is coming. So he says, you need to be um, always uh, be aware of opportunities when they come. Overall advice is be open to ideas, even if they're not yours. Don't reject an idea because it isn't yours. If you're on a team and other people have good ideas, stand firm to make your point of this is what I'm hoping to achieve. But don't be so difficult to say, there's only my way. Everybody's there because they know what your vision is. So ultimately, nobody's going to suggest something that's going to change that. But they might suggest something that modifies the way you get there. It, especially if nobody's getting paid, be open to ideas. Be open to collaboration because it's not an auteur thing where you're doing everything. Unless it is. If you're doing everything, then, then you're doing everything. But if you have a team, always make sure they feel valued and appreciated because kindness goes a long way. People feel appreciated. They're more inclined to give you 110%. Whereas if they just, if it's just a job, they might just be like, all right, it's five o'clock. I'm punching out. I'm going home. But if they really respect you and they admire you and, and there's mutual respect, they might stay over and, and help you and stay longer. That's advice I would give. And also when you are outside and you, you know, the sun is on you, you cast a shadow. That's a metaphor too, but you, cannot escape your own shadow. You have to live with yourself. You wake up every morning with yourself and you fall asleep every night with yourself. So it means you have to live with yourself. Don't make choices that you regret. Don't make compromises that you can't live with because there's always compromises, but always make sure that you can look at yourself in the mirror and like what you see. Don't compromise yourself. Too much anyway. I mean, there's always a little bit, but moral character is important. You don't want to mess somebody over and, and, and cheat them. You don't want to uh, betray people's trust. You know, there's a line from Scarface that my, uh, I don't break my balls or my word for nobody because it's all you got in this world is your word and your balls. That's a met metaphor, but don't compromise that. Don't compromise integrity. Don't write a check you can't cash. Don't make a promise to somebody and then go back on it because you may not get that opportunity again. They might be like, oh, this guy's not reliable. Those are very important things that people that are trying to get into all this film stuff or really any business should do. And also have fun. It doesn't mean the work has to be fun, but if you're not enjoying what you're doing and you're not getting paid for it, then why do it? You know, you have to sometimes do things, uh, jobs that you don't enjoy because there's money, but Filmmaking or art should be a passion. 
And there's lots of scripts. I, I sit and sit there and write my scripts, and I'm not being paid. Nobody's paying me to write these scripts, but they're stories that I feel I need to tell. It's a burning desire inside me to tell those stories. It's what gets me out of bed, uh, aside from my family and friends, you know. That's the driving force of my life is being a storyteller, a world builder. I, I like creating characters and scenarios and putting them on ch the chess players on the board and moving them around. I like making films. It's what brings me happiness. Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at creatorsbymoonlight.com.